Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today are among the nation's leading defense acquisition thinkers, Dr. Jerry McGinn, a soldier scholar who is the executive director uh, of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. Uh, he also served in the Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy, uh, and he is joined by his colleague, Eric Lofgren, a research fellow specializing in government contracting. They are, uh, along with Lloyd Everhard, also of GMU, of a new report uh, released last month, Execution Flexibility and Bridging the Valley of Death, uh, a topic uh, very important at a time when the Pentagon is trying to engage uh, more innovative contractors, uh, innovative commercial companies, and bring them into the defense uh, space uh, than ever. Jerry and Eric, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Vago. Great to be with you. An absolute pleasure having both of you on. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo, DRS, and Safran. Uh, Jerry, walk us through the key takeaways of the report. Uh, it's uh, uh, thankfully not very long, so folks should be able to uh, read the whole thing, at the very least read uh, what is a pretty succinct executive summary. And you guys are giving a take on what has been an age-old problem, right? I mean, I began my career uh, covering the bridging of the Valley of Death. Uh, we discussed it over and over again when uh, you uh, served in the department during the Obama administration, uh, trying to bridge the Valley of Death, Uh and, and now you're doing that from your uh, unique perch at George, George Mason, uh, which really does have an, an extraordinary department that you, you've created there. Um, you know, the department has the uh, adaptive or the flexible acquisition framework to try to accelerate the process. You guys have noted over and over again that we have all the legislative authorities we need. Eric's uh, talked about that. W what did you guys learn? What are the most important takeaways from, from this report uh, that, like so many, is trying to advance the ball to focus people's attention? Uh, mm -hmm. on a topic that we've we've just struggled with and not really made much progress on over decades. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point, Vago, and thanks. Uh, yeah, so in, in this effort, what we want to do is we want to look at, you know, there's all this talk about the Valley of Death, and, and first of all, we want to help define it and the way we, um, um, and then, you know, what, but the really interesting question for us was, what tools do we have that can help us get from, you know, the prototype, you know, challenges, you know, um, these, these uh, innovative te technologies and then get these into programs of record or, or you know, uh, and what kind of flexibilities do you have that don't involve starting three years in advance by, you know, setting up a new program. So we call these execution flexibilities and um, those are in-year execution flexibilities you can do within the current budget and like. And so, so we looked at four particular kind of um, ways to do that. Uh, one is reprogramming. Um, another is use of expired funds. Uh, the third was looking at innovation funds, you know, such as um, uh, the Rapid Innovation Fund and uh, Heidi Shue's new uh, Raider Fund, Raider, um, you know, uh, Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve. Uh, and then we looked finally at portfolio or program element consolidation. 
And our biggest takeaways were number one, as you said, you know, that we have the authorities we need, the department does and Congress does to um, do a lot more than it does now to accelerate um, transition. Uh, the challenge has been kind of, there's a big lack of trust, which is why um, the use of expired funds or rope reprogram is the, it really doesn't really look practical. I mean, we had some roundtable discussions off the record and uh, in person with congressional member or staffers, uh, current and former um, defense officials, and you know, and came to this conclusion that you know the trust level between DoD and Congress is really kind of not there. Um, so those areas were just sort of out of it. Um, and then we did find, however, that what you could do with innovation funds uh, and some level of portfolio consolidation, sort of if you tied the funds to experimentation um, efforts, you could sort of help create a better way to get more kind of um, uh, this year dollars to, to transition to the services in, in a quicker way. Um, so Eric, uh, did I summarize it um, pretty well? Yeah, I think so. You know, one thing here on just a historical perspective, in the 40s and 50s, there wasn't necessarily a valley of death, right? One of the concerns was that the services were too quickly moving into production and there was too much duplication and overlap. And that's why uh, Robert McNamara and his whiz kids came in in the 1960s with this planning, programming, budgeting, execution system. We added the execution in 2003, but it's the same basic system to more centrally control the types of programs going on in the services and plan those many years in advance, lock in a baseline, and then measure back to execution. And just to give you a little hint of why this has really created a problem for the department over the years that we haven't fixed in over 50 years is that execution or the delegated authority to move money around in a timely way has very much been constricted. The number of program elements went from about 20 in the services in research and development to over 200 today. So there's a 10x um, growth in the number of budget lines, right? So much more micromanagement. Right reprogramming was 20% of research and development in 1961, uh, 20%. Today, it's less than 3%. Um, and then again, we had no ex expiration of funds. You didn't have to use it or lose it until, not, until the 1970s. So right. managers were much more able to make cost schedule technical trade-offs in the year of execution in a timely way. And today, managers don't have very many sources of funding which allow them to make those types of decisions timely. And so that's why we have this multi-year process from the program objectives memorandum into appropriations, it just takes a long time and it leaves a lot of uncertainty and creates this uh, time gap. Let me ask you an acquisition history question, right? I mean, because you summarized pretty clearly um, what the process was like in the uh, in the 40s and 50s, how it changed in the 60s, how it then changed in the 70s. And then we had, you know, we've basically been living with a minor adaptation, right? We added an E, as you as you said, in 2003, uh, when Dov Zakheim, uh, who's a regular on this program, was Pentagon comptroller. Um, you know, when you read Chip Wars by Chris Miller, um, you see how the Pentagon used to be able to work, right? Which is with some speed. If it If it found a good idea, it moved that good idea uh, relatively quickly through the pipeline and did create entirely new industries in the process of doing it, whether it was in computing, integrated circuits, precision, and any one of a number of other fields where 
you know, companies that were newly born were very rapidly became, uh, whether it was Fairchild or Intel or, or what have you. We went to a much more methodical acquisition process uh, where you study the problem for a long time. You have, you know, if you, you have no first mover advantage, right? If you create a better mousetrap, the department will study the mousetrap and then compete the mousetrap, you know, and by the time the mousetrap is developed, the mice have either adapted or, or that's not the right approach anymore. What do we need to do different in terms of our fundamental approach if we're trying to harness these commercial cycles uh, better? And I would argue the department has been remarkably unsuccessful uh, despite all the things that it's been doing. What are some of the other specific things that have to happen to actually be able to move at the speed and at the scale of relevance? Yeah, I think one of the things that we we thought about here was from the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act, there were several authorities given other transactions for contracting, a middle tier of acquisition for acquisition, but also that affected the timelines of requirements, right? And, that, and now we also have the software acquisition pathway, which also goes around the joint capabilities integration development system or the requirements process. So we've been able to collapse and delegate a lot of authorities in terms of requirements and acquisition. But the other leg of that stool um, in terms of funding the money because money makes the world go around, of course, um, that one hasn't hasn't been as successful. There was a, a little fund, the Rapid Prototyping Fund, created in 2016 to help fund these middle tier of acquisition, so they didn't take multiple years just to find money. It's no longer Rapid in that case. Um, that that fund is, of course, defunct, right? Um, no longer being funded. And so, what we really saw here was you don't need exceptional authorities for budgeting. Right. The line items like an F-35 underneath the appropriations, those budget line items or program elements, they're not actually written into law. There's no legislation or statute that says a program element must be defined in this way and, and have this scope or purpose. And so some of it is just an understanding between the department and Congress that we need some additional flexibility within the money or within a funding line to do multiple types of programs, multiple lines of effort within a funding line. So we don't have to go back or the department doesn't have to go back for an above threshold reprogramming, which takes a long time. It's a lot of effort. Um, it goes through four committees. So it's another act of Congress just to move a few million dollars uh, between budget line items. So being able to give a program manager or a program executive office, the ability to move funds and because, of course, we've seen and what Ellen Lord did a lot in the 2017-18 timeframe was delegate acquisition authority so you could get milestone decisions to the program executive offices. Well, they can make those decisions in a timely way to start a new program or change that baseline potentially, but then they don't have the money to do it. The money was already, was already there. And so if someone comes with their new cool commercial technology or emerging technology and it solves the problem better, cheaper, um, maybe it gives you an 80% requirement, but at 20% of the cost, well, the program manager has no choice. Look, I'm funded for this. Here's my cost schedule technical. I got to stay on these railroad tracks. I can't deviate, but maybe we can palm for it in 24 or 25. And that's just not going to work uh, when commercial cycle times for software and electronics are within the OODA loop, within the, the cycle time of decisions for budgeting. But also we have the decisive decade here in the, in the 2020s 
we have to be able to make move movements and funding choices and programmatic choices uh, within the future years defense program to really affect uh, the timelines that are going on in, in DOPACOM. Jerry, what do you want to add to that? And, and also um, what you hope the PPBE uh, commission is uh, going to come out with, right? Because there are, there are many people who actually don't believe there is all that much wrong with it. It's more how you use it as opposed to the mechanism itself. Whereas uh, there are others who, you know, sort of portray themselves or and see themselves often as victims of the process, right? Yeah. You, you either live within it or are victimized by it. Um, you know, what, what, what's your sense in the changes yeah. we've made to date, but then also what we need to see from the commission? Yeah. So uh, I, we both applaud the commission and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, we're um, very excited that they're, they're, they're getting rolling and, and uh, we're going to speak to them early next year um, and we're honored to do so. Um, but, you know, if you think about, you know, that when McNamara set up this system, you know, of the, the centralized planning systems, very system engineering approach, it, that was state of the art in the 1960s. That's how he ran forward. That's how, you know, the, the companies were run. Companies have long ago moved on from that approach, um, and we're stuck with it, right? So, um, but there are a lot of, as you say, institutional biases towards it. It creates a lot of stability. Um, you know, it creates a lot of, you know, a very scholaric um, bureaucracy. However, so how do you get out of it? So, the commission, you know, because they have, you know, a kind of, a, you know, a several year timeline. Uh, it's going to be several years before they get to where they can be. I mean, Eleanor talked about the commission at our conference and she did mention they're going to be looking for low hanging fruit or things that can be done kind of uh, where they can get consensus because there are lots of different folks on commission. And that was sort of the emphasis of this report that we did. We said, you know, well, okay, the commission's great. Let's do it. But what can we do now um, and to get the system going faster? And, and that was sort of our focus because uh, the threats facing us require faster cycle times than, you know, POM 28, you know, you know, starting to develop new programs. So how do we do that within the system? And so what we were looking to do was like how, you know, the Indo-PACOM and other um, a, a, um, uh, combatant commanders, they're doing a lot of operational exercises, you know, and the services are doing that too with like project convergence, project overmatch. Uh, but no, the question is, how does this then translate? Who catches these capabilities, these these prototypes are developing? And, and there, there's not a lot of connectivity um, between these exercises and the program executive offices. So um, one of the things that we really want to see, and this is an area kind of we want to drill down on in the in the coming weeks, is you know how do we improve how we connect our operational kind of experiments, um, you know, you know, that help us in, in Indo-PACOM and, you know, these kind of challenging areas with the capabilities we're development, uh, developing in program executive offices. So, so getting it, so it's not just these little outposts that like DIU and SCO that are wonderful, but how do we get, you know, this innovation and the for addition connected to the big army, big air force and do cycles, um, iterative cycles and changes uh, as it, it, within the program. So that's, you know, what we try to get in the report and what we believe needs to happen. Over. Uh, you um, um, mentioned, uh, you mentioned the report, or, I mean, I think right at the top, if I'm not mistaken, about the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System and that yeah. it's going to take, um, you know, effort to be able to get it and, and to be able to integrate these kind of capabilities and do them quickly. The administration yeah. has a new uh, strategy on it. We recently did a show with, 
um, Brian Clark uh, of the Hudson Institute, Heather Penny of the Mitchell Institute, uh, and Chris Doherty of uh, the Center for a New American Security, where we talked about the mechanics of getting all of this uh, done uh, and done uh, at, at the speed of uh, relevance. And the concern is, you know, we're, we're just doing experiment, a lot of experimentations rather than actually starting to chart a course in a direction uh, and, and integrate um, capabilities. Um, whether it's Eric or Jerry, how do you grade our efforts at driving change, right? We had the Defense Innovation Initiative. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Carter, the late uh, Dr. Ash Carter, uh, when he was Defense Secretary, launch uh, the DIUX, right? Defense Innovation uh, Unit Experimental. Uh, it then become, became DIU uh, under uh, Rod Shawn and Mike Brown. Uh, you know, but less industrial scale change and, and more boutique change, right? Be a outpost uh, to uh, engage commercial industry uh, and harness it to solve uh, the Pentagon's problems. So how would you grade uh, the progress, uh, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Dr. McGinn, since you went and you're a tough grader, I'll let you go after Eric. Eric, why don't you start us off? Yeah, maybe I'm a little bit more dovish. I think that the department is actually doing a reasonably good job. Dr. Bill LaPlante at our recent conference, he mentioned that the uh, the services are actually working quite well together on JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control. And I tend to be a believer that you can't stop. And if you want to be able to get and field something that works within the, the time frame for 2027, you're not going to be able to stop everybody and get them all onto a single uh, set of standards that creates this interoperability. It's going to have to be a more federated approach where you target specific mission threads and build those out using certain tools like stitches that Dan Pat built, Brian Clark's uh, colleague over there, helped build over at, at DARPA um, and do more targeted efforts and, and field those quickly. And I think the federated approach can work and will work and potentially is working better than we see on the public on the outside in terms of just headline news. Uh, but that's, of course, a, you know, a more empirical question. I, but I would say here that JADC2, going back to our issue with the budget, it breaks all of the paradigms that the budget was set up for. The budget was set up for stovepipe weapon systems fully integrated by a lead single prime integrator. And JADC2 is not about a single program stovepipe. It crosses programs. It's about interoperability. It also crosses all services. It's software defined. So it also bridges those uh, colors of money, as we call it, research and development, procurement, and O&M. So it's definitely a challenge. And the department's done what it can within the framework that it has been given. And I think it's a, it's a hard challenge but it's going to have to be an incremental approach. And the department seems to be taking that incremental approach, even though there's fits and starts and stops. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a big uh, you know, failure. I think there is progress, uh, but more can be done. Jerry, how do you grade the progress, Mr. Tough Grader? Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I'm sorry to say that I have to agree with Eric uh, in large part. So I mean, I put a grade on, I, I would give the department kind of an overall B, um, I mean, you cannot, um, in the sense that I think 
they've gotten the message, and this goes back three three administrations: the Obama administration, Trump administration, and currently the Biden administration. They've gotten the need to innovate. I mean, they set up DIU, uh, the late Ash Carter. They've set up. They really recognize kind of a lot of what they need to do, and they've made efforts to start getting there. But you know, it just hasn't gotten to the scale. At, at near to the scale where where it um, where it needs to be. I mean, we did a report last year. We called acquisition next, and Eric right. did some analysis. And if you look at all these great things, DIU, Softworks, Afworks, all these things, I mean, they're in the you know low billions of dollars, and we're spending you know you know seventy you know seventy five billion dollars a year on R and D, and um, we're spending you know uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on acquisition and sustainment. So it just doesn't move the needle right now. Um, and um, so the real effort is how do we get this to scale? How do we kind of um, make the system more iterative across the board? Um, and, you know, I, I see efforts going that way. If you look at like for OMFV, you've got five better bidders. They're using MTAs. Those two, three of those bidders are led by non-U.S. Um, headquartered companies. And so you're, you are seeing some of that being done. Um, is it being done the speed needs to be done? It needs to be. Is it being done at the scale it needs to be done? No, but um, uh, you know, I see remarkable consistency um, um, across administrations. You know, and I also see, you know, frankly, um, re remarkable. I mean, consistent, consistent frustrations because it, I mean, it, it's not easy to do. I mean, in, in our recent conference, I was did a fireside chat with Laplante and. And he's, you know, he was candid. It was like, you know, for JADC2, these kind of, this integrating, this technology integration is something we've been trying to do for decades. And it is not easy. So, I mean, so conceptually you can get there, but doing it um, technically is hard. Um, some of the stuff we're, that um, that we, um, is not hard, but we need to move to more iterative efforts that allow us to, um, to um, keep swapping out, um, you know, within kind of this, you know, decision timeframes for the technology, right. um, more open systems architecture that allow us to develop and um, modify systems over time. So we're not, you know, um, running to, like we've talked about previously, all these obsolescence issues right. and lack of production issues. But anyway, um, I'm going on long enough. No, 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 not, not, not at all. Um, let me, let me guys ask you uh, both uh, about uh, DIU. Uh, Mike Brown, we we had an exit interview with him uh, earlier in the year. He said he'd be leaving, uh, you know, in September. Um, that happened. We don't have a, a an an announced replacement, uh, and some have questioned. You know, I mean, on the one hand, there are those who look at this as a totemic thing. If you get rid of DIU, uh, that is the end of innovation as we know it. Uh, others are a little bit critical and say, look, this is an you know, I mean, it's become another gigantic ecosystem uh, that justifies its own existence, you know, but is not necessarily moving the needle as, as quickly. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. Is DIU relevant? Because the whole question has been, as good as it is, it is a boutique capability that has solved, you know, as, as Mike was very proud, you know, 100 or so really uh, interesting problems for, uh, you know, units around the world. But there are those who would say it's not really delivering industrial scale solutions, nor helping anybody really bridge that valley uh, in a dramatic standpoint, right? I mean, and the valley we're talking about is you can get so far on Sibbers, but eventually, you know, to emerge from the other side, you, you actually need real work 
a number of uh, companies fall uh, into that category that are sort of the innovative buzzword companies that um, not, yeah. not just buzzword, but right. I mean, a number of innovative companies, whether it's Epirus or uh, Improbable or Rebellion, yeah. right. And a lot of these very interesting companies are trying to get to that other side of, of dramatic growth. Um, do we need DIU or do we need a fundamentally sort of different approach to being able to do this uh, that goes beyond PPBE, right? Or, or is it the right way to do that in the con context of AFWorks, SoftWorks, you know, all the works is Naval X um, that act as a advanced early warning, early detection? What do you think, Jerry? And Eric, your, your take as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it is the kind of big question. I mean, you know, I know Mike well, and you know, and he was clearly frustrated with the inability to kind of really scale efforts at DIU, and, and the real question, like you know, we asked this question to Heidi Shu, I and mean, like, do we, you know, are these all these outposts and these innovation kind of units, uh, is it too many? Do we need to find a way to scale this, or or would that stifle the innovation? And she very much came down, no, nah, it's good, we've got it, it's the right kind of approach. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's going to be hard to find a person like Mike Brown to replace him because the same frustrations that he ran into are not going to change, uh, the, in my view. Uh, but the department has to, we've really got to find a way, I think, to, to scale this kind of, uh, this capability development so that you can transition uh, better from these outposts to to actual programs or have programs that can be more adaptive. Um, and we're not there. Um, and, and um, you know, I don't think DIU is the final answer for that. Um, but um, let me give you one example. We did a white paper looking at um, one of the, the initial U cases that DIU stood up was looking at predictive maintenance, right? Which is looking right. at how you can, you know, predict failures of parts and so on. And the Jake also did a, pro, a set of program uh, prototypes on this. And I did a white paper looking at this issue. And it was interesting because these, these, these little prototypes that were done in 2017, 2018, 2019, they transitioned to the Army and the Air Force and um, the Marine Corps, respectively. I, and, you know, um, you know, it wasn't and they weren't um, received in a NIMBY fashion. Well, this is not invented here. I, you know, I, I don't I don't want anything to do with this. The Army and the Air Force are actually developing, continue to develop and uh, moving these technologies forward. Not the exact same things they got from DIU or the Jake, but they're moving not at the scale you want to see. So, um, you know, so I think that it is a good start. Um, but it's not the the model that needs long term for the department. But I think Eric probably has the right answer on how we do scale it. <laughs> um, well, nice, yeah, nicely, first... nicely done, uh, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, I would first ahead, say that you know for DIU, right? We can't expect too much out of it because it has been severely constrained in the amount of funding it actually has um, to do what it needs to do, right? well less than $100 million, usually like the 40 to $70 million range. And so they really have to target what they're trying to do. Um, and they've kind of gone after, you know, larger companies that are higher TRL technology readiness level than what you might see in a small business innovation research. But as Jerry said, um, the whole kind of environment is constraining on them because they can't scale anything themselves. They have to work with the customers and the program executive officers. Um, and they have been, right? So they worked the problem statement up front with the customers 
Um, so that so it's all rooted in the requirements process and that they have a transition partner, but they still have to work it through those transition partners. And that's where a lot of the constraints and the flexibility comes from, because the program offices already had their funding pipelined years before they have a schedule that they have to meet. And if you tell them that there's a new technology that can do something, you just told the program manager that he's not going to make cost or schedule on his current thing and he has to pivot. And that's not a great thing to hear sometimes, right? So how do we, a lot of our concept here was how do the program offices um, own and have execution flexibility themselves so when they see something that's high value add, they can make those trade-offs with lower value things that they're currently doing in a consistent way and in in a way that has visibility and transparency into it but doesn't constrain those individuals. And so a lot of uh, budget reform, right? PBBE reform also looks like, how do you um, give a person with the knowledge and authority uh, a purpose and empower them to go after it, right? And, And so the DIU issue is very similar to what Jerry was talking about with some of these experimentation exercises like Task Force 59, Project Convergence, you can bring in um, all sorts of companies and they will happily you know, put self-funded work into providing a demonstration or a prototype, right? And then they, they, they might even be successful out on the field in that exercise, but there's no money to hold them over and then bridge them into the program offices. It's multiple years. So most commercial companies can go from a prototype to commercialization within two years. And even for these deep tech areas, there's been reports that, you know, between two and three years, even for AI, ML, drones, um, even biotech stuff, uh, that's the cycle time. But once you've demonstrated something and the service wants it, it's going to take at least three years before the appropriation comes. And then you start the contract process. Right. That's a lot of uncertainty for one of these companies to have when they need to go through a funding round in the next 18 months. And their investors are saying, do you have traction? Well, we've commercialized or we've fully developed this prototype and we think it's ready for fielding, but we don't even know if there's money against this thing, let alone if there's going to be, they're going to recompete the contract out for everybody to go into. And we might not even win that. So there's a lot of hurdles there. And that's one of the issues. And that's why we talk about for the program executive offices, can you give them by consolidating these budget lines and giving a little bit of fuzziness in terms of what you're going to do in the future they can make these trade-offs and do new starts without going to prior approval con- congressional requirements, uh, but still give Congress the visibility and the notification so that they can say no. Um, very quickly, uh, Jerry, you uh, get the last word. You heard Eric say three years, right? It's three years if you're lucky. Three years, we built an atom bomb. I'm just saying. All yeah. of World War II was three years, nine months, okay, uh, in terms of the U.S. participation in it. What what is the kind of speed of relevance that we need? What is the, you know, a year, right? What's the way we need to think about the mental clock? Uh, Because a lot of these commercial companies, you know, just getting a meeting in the department takes months and they're like, dude, that's a, that is a lifetime for us. Yeah, no, I I think we have got to find um, ways to cycle uh, faster. One of the things that COVID really taught me is like, you know, when we have an existential threat, 
we can respond. I mean, the reports would look at the federal response to COVID and the amount of money we were able to get on contract, look at operation and warp speed. If there's a real need, it gets done. I mean, similarly, I think we have to have, you know, I mean, I, I get tired of these sort of, you know, Manhattan projects, you know, Marshall Plan kind of, you know, kind of metaphors. But you have to have that singular focus uh, on a specific problem. And you can see that with with um, Dr. Plant and his focus on production in the wake of looking at the, U, the Ukraine situation. And the fact that, you know, we're dealing with all these obsolescence problems on things that we just have to start really kind of thinking as we develop these acquisition plans, how do we produce, how do we have um, search capacity, how do we do it so that we can iterate and develop capabilities um, um, more rapidly over time, you know, and this is going to be this, you know, as I think we've talked about in another form, this is going to be where we may have to, it might be more expensive, we may have to do two, um, um, we may have to start producing two fighters or two sets of capabilities, so you can start iterating on capabilities and developing, you know, um, you know, you know uh, the the capabilities we need to for these 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 uh, these tremendous fights we're going to be having in the South Pacific, um, uh, and it, you're going to need to kind of get away from this sort of you know just in time philosophy on supply chains, the the total emphasis on requirements and um, cost schedule and performance on acquisition to where we think about more what's good enough and how do we scale production and really get more of what we need to the warfighter and allow us the um, the ability to be able to the, to also um, you know to modify and adapt as we um, programs develop over time guys uh thanks very much for joining us it's a pleasure uh as always i commend the audience to uh check out the report and go to uh where where uh, jerry can folks go to watch uh the whole program yeah so um yeah so you go to our website uh, it's govcon.gmu.edu um and we're we're sending the, we're going to send out the um the uh videos for the entire conference post them pretty soon right now they're going out to the attendees but uh, but you'll see our report there, the one we've been talking about, as well as our other white papers and reports on our on our webpage. Guys, thanks very much again.